Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. The FBI is here. Oh, the FBI is here now? Yes, sir, right over there. In cop movies, the oldest Hollywood cliche is a beef between two jurisdictions usually the FBI and local detectives. Like this one from the 1988 Bruce Willis classic, Die Hard. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh, I'm Dwayne Robinson, LAPD. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. If you want to know why former President Donald Trump is on the cusp of being indicted, the place to start is understanding how the Trump case did a kind of reverse diehard, jumping from the feds in the Southern District of New York to the local district attorney in Manhattan. And that story begins with a phone call. Cyrus Vance Sr. was the Secretary of State under Jimmy Carter when I was in my uh, 20s when President Carter was elected, and I got to know uh, Mr. Vance. That's Lanny Davis. He's one of the attorneys from Michael Cohen, the central witness in the Manhattan DA's case against Trump. So his son being the DA of New York, I called after Michael was sent to uh, prison, and I thought to myself the uh, evidence of uh, financial fraud was on the record in the hearings and that uh, Vance's office uh, should interview Michael. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. When Lanny Davis called Cy Vance, the case against Trump was dead. Federal prosecutors had put Davis's client, Michael Cohen, Trump's longtime lawyer and self-described fixer, in jail for a number of offenses, including his role in paying Stormy Daniels $130,000 in exchange for her not telling the media her account of an alleged affair with Donald Trump. When they sent Cohen to prison, federal prosecutors pointedly noted that Trump directed Cohen to make the payments to Stormy Daniels, which they said violated campaign finance laws. At the time, everyone thought that those same prosecutors in the Southern District of New York would go after Trump next, as soon as he left office. But they never did. So Davis convinced Cy Vance to take up the case instead. Mark Pomerantz, a former prosecutor in Vance's office and the original architect of the case, wrote in his memoir, the people versus Donald Trump, that, quote, the hush money inquiry came to be known as the zombie case, end quote. The case was dead, and then it was revived under Vance, and then it died again and was resurrected again by Alvin Bragg, the current Manhattan DA who took over when Vance left last year. And now Donald Trump is in serious legal peril. Lanny Davis long ago established himself as the go-to operative in Washington when you're in the middle of a PR crisis. He was famously the public face defending his good friend Bill Clinton during the Monica Lewinsky scandal in 1998. 25 years later, as Michael Cohen's attorney and spokesman, Lanny is on the other side 
of another presidential sex scandal. And this one could send Donald Trump to jail. That is, if jurors believe Michael Cohen. Cohen lied for Trump for over a decade. And whenever this zombie case died, it was usually because someone had doubts about using Cohen as a witness. I caught up with Lanny in his Washington, D.C. office to hear the story of how the Trump zombie case came back from the dead and why he insists jurors should believe his client. If Trump's indicted, what is the reaction from your camp going to be? So I can't speak for my client, but I can speak for myself. Mr. Trump, if he's indicted, is innocent. Innocent until proven guilty by 12 people who've heard a trial in cross-examination and direct evidence, heard Mr. Trump's defenses, and then vote unanimously beyond a reasonable doubt. As of the moment that indictment is announced, everybody should know indictments are not evidence of anything. They shouldn't be believed. They're a one-sided presentation, and a grand jury doesn't get to hear the other side. That's our system. As long as prosecutors remind everyone, just because it's an indictment, it only means it's an accusation. Now the other side in our system of justice gets to put on a defense. That would be my uh, best message to the American people, not to act in any way as if Mr. Trump is guilty or even seems guilty, but say now it's time for the facts and due process to prevail. This is, you, you feel this very deeply as someone yes. who's represented people who have been accused of things. And with all due respect to all my friends in the media, and they are my friends, even though I sometimes yell at them, and I hate myself when I do that, the media does go with the word indictment as a major headline. Nothing I can do to prevent that. There should be a paragraph, which good prosecutors will say, innocent until proven guilty. One of the theories that Pomerantz puts forward in terms of why the Southern District of New York didn't go after Trump for, for any of this stuff is, um, well, Michael and SDNY had a, a difficult uh, relationship. They weren't on the best of terms. And he says that was part of it, but perhaps they did not see Michael as a credible witness. And that comes up repeatedly, right? That comes up in the in the whole. You know, some of the people in the in the in the Manhattan DA's office have have had uh, reservations. I'm just going to read one thing in here, Lanny, and then and then you can defend your clients. But Pomerantz cites uh, Julietta Lozano, the head of the Major Economic Crimes Bureau. This is from Pomerantz's book. Said at this one meeting, she could not see ever calling Cohen to testify about anything because she did not trust anything he said. I should add that Pomerantz then says, I completely disagreed. So the issue of Cohen's credibility comes up in these investigations repeatedly. So there's a date uh, I wanted to say the date of this memo is an important date. Uh, December 7th, 2018, you can Google and find it, uh, SDNY sentencing memo, Michael Cohn. Google it, yeah. you can read. I've read it. <laughs> and look at page 11 and page 14. Page 11 is the directed Michael to pay the, the hush money. Page 14 is the reimbursements from these $35,000 checks that were falsely booked as legal expenses. Okay. But the most important date that this individual, I thought, I think I saw her on television last night, who didn't think Michael was credible, was 100% correct up to one date. And it's the other date I hope your audience focuses on and understands the significance. On July 2nd, 2018, 
Michael Cohn made a turn and made a decision that he's paid for to this day with the attacks being made on him to this day. He decided to tell the truth about what he said were the dirty deeds he did for 10 years for Donald Trump. George Stephanopoulos on ABC.com broke the story. I was part of the way that happened. Yeah. And then Michael Cohn went to Elijah Cummings, who very, very skeptically was not ready to put Michael in front of his committee because he had lied for 10 years for Donald Trump. And he said, I'll take a bullet for Donald Trump. And he had a yeah. terrible record. And Cummings said, how do you get around my skepticism? And Michael said, and he meant it, and he said it, and to this day, he still says it. I have no excuse. I'm ashamed. For my family and my country, I'm making a change in my life. I'm going to tell the truth and take the consequences. Everything since July 2nd, when he went public with Stephanopoulos, and then February 27th, 2019, in front of an array of Republicans calling him a liar, he took the music. And on national and international television, he made no excuses. He said, what I did was evil, wrong. I do not even ask you to accept my apology. I'm ashamed. But now it's time for my family and for my country to tell the truth. Since that time, I have not seen anyone say that Michael Cohn has lied. He may have made some mistakes, for example, not remembering that he signed a waiver with the Southern District so he could try to get a reduction of his sentence, which is the context for that signature, which he didn't remember and I didn't remember, by the way. I should have remembered it because my co-counsel was the criminal defense lawyer who went into the Southern District to ask for a reduction of sentence. They said, well, we can't talk about Costello and his attempt to keep you in the tent uh, name-dropping Rudy Giuliani in his emails as well as uh, the, the man in the White House. But at that point in time, Michael is still in the Liars Club. It was in uh, right before uh, he came to me. It was in June of 2018. He came to me at the end of June. He went to Stephanopoulos and went public on July 2nd. And from that moment on, including the Cummings hearings, all he's done is tell the truth. And then he is taken the consequence, going to jail and telling the truth. Because we're talking about his credibility. Yes, I'm gonna, please. I'm going to jump forward to what happened this week with uh, Costello. So there's this last minute um, witness that comes into the grand jury in Manhattan on Wednesday. Um, he does a lot of press a afterwards, explains what his, his testimony is. But he's basically trying to tell a story that this grand jury can't trust Michael Cohen. The key witness in the case is a liar and not credible. Unpack that episode for us this week. I, I assume you have a defense from the allegations he's making, but two, in the broader picture, what has it done to the kind of uh, denouement of this uh, of, of this grand jury that we, we thought was uh, heading towards an indictment this week? So I can't answer your question, even touch on your question, because this is a grand jury uh, ongoing, and it's... Uh, impossible for me to address what Costello said to the grand jury. And but you what, certainly saw what he said afterwards. What he And said. I saw what he said afterwards. I can't even rebut that because it's still involving a grand jury before an indictment. And I'm not allowed as a lawyer, and I cannot. Okay. But I can say what's been in the public record before Costello. And we know it's been reported that Costello sent a series of emails to Michael Cohn trying to sign him up as a lawyer. Right. And we also know from the public record, nothing to do with the grand jury testimony, that Cohn hung up on him. 
because he saw he was trying to be lured back into the what I call the Liars Club. All the people that were telling Michael to lie about his letter to Congress, all the people who wanted him to cover up about the hush money payment. He was part of the club. He did that for 10 years. He said so in public. So what Costello tried to do that's been publicly reported is to, he mentioned Giuliani and Giuliani's client. We all love you. He was trying to keep him in the tent. That's all I can say. As to what a pardon in front of him, perhaps? We said that publicly so I can confirm that what Michael said to the congressional committee is I never asked for a pardon. But they were dangling it in front of me when I was still part of the Liars Club before July 2nd, 2018. I keep saying that day because his life changed. Elijah Cummings ended the hearing by saying this is a story of redemption. So what I'm saying is that the Costello phase occurred in May and June of 2018 when Michael was still unclear which way do I go here and then he called me and I had my days of skepticism you lied for 10 years you did really evil things for Donald Trump why how can I represent you not on a moral basis of course I disagreed morally what he did but how do I effectively defend you when you've lied for so long that was the key moment on July 2nd, where he said, I'm turning my life around. I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to go to jail. I'm going to suffer attacks and threats from Donald Trump to my family, which he did on Twitter. called him a rat before he went to prison. He took all this pain and the suffering of being sent back to prison because he said he was going to write a book, took a federal judge to order him out because it was a retaliatory, illegal uh, act by the Justice Department to send him back to prison. And the judge basically said the Southern District lied when they said, oh, it wasn't about his book. And the judge said, in a written opinion, oh, yes, it was. He didn't use the word lie about prosecutors. Prosecutors submitted that, oh, it wasn't about the book. The judge said, oh, yes, it was. So you make it up. But the point is, Michael's life changed. And the Costello question you're asking me, I can only tell you what's in the public domain, is that this was at the time period of his life where he saw this as dangling a pardon in order to keep him in the tent. And that's when he first called me, and the breaking point was on July 2nd. The reporting we have is that there's one more witness that is going to testify. Uh, I think the assumption is that this witness is going to rebut Costello's testimony. You put out a statement the other day saying that Michael was not was on, on call to go before the grand jury after Costello. I think your wording was you were very satisfied or happy that he was not called back in. Not needed. Is not the needed. So the implication was, okay, Costello didn't do too much damage because they didn't need Michael to come in and, and rebut it. Do you know who this final witness is? I don't even know if there is a final witness. Okay. I have to say uh, we're a little bit upset that the DA people won't tell us, but they're doing their jobs. I'm not criticizing them. It's just hard for us when, hey, I hear you're going up to New York. I hear you might be a, a rebuttal witness. The answer is I don't know. But uh, I can say, because I did say publicly, that we sat for two hours waiting in case we were needed. I put that into a public statement that was approved by Michael. And then the uh, prosecutive team for Mr. Bragg came in and said, we don't need you. We considered that to be good news. All right. Give us a little bit of flavor about what it's what it's like when you, when you go up there. What, what is it like working with the uh, Alvin Bragg and the, the DA's office? What is it like in terms of uh, security and threats? I mean, what's the what's the whole uh, circus like right now? You were you were there the other day when probably the more media attention was on this than th- this 
specific case than, than there ever has been. And it is the only day, because Michael did not want the appearance of ducking, and neither did I, even though the certainly the DA would have preferred it. The appearance that, of ducking? The media. Got it. So we've always gone in the door where everyone was gathered. Yeah. I happen to think it's a courtesy if everyone's gathered waiting for one comment and they're doing their jobs. I have sympathy with people in the press corps. So you try and make sure you have something you can say? Just give them something yeah. for all their time. And so we always had made up what we decided we were going to say going in and going out. The, the DA's office would have preferred that we not go through there and go through a side door or through a tunnel. But the very last time that we were in waiting in case he was needed, which I think was last week, I forget the date, uh, we decided not to go in through the public gaggle of reporters. Why? Honestly, uh, we were concerned about security after Donald Trump said, protest, protest, protest. Anyone who doubts even slightly that Donald Trump incited what happened on 1-6 is literally closing their eyes to what he said and what he did. So now that he's uh, potentially, I don't know whether he's going to be indicted. I really don't. But if he is, and if he's arrested, uh, his inflammatory rhetoric on his new social media uh, is dangerous. And we all have families, and we communicated our desire this one time not to go through the gaggle, but to be taken in through a private entrance. It turns out that the word got out, and there were a lot of people waiting for us to go into the <laughs> So it wasn't that private after all. But at least we were in a car, and we were protected by uh, law enforcement. You were? Yes. So you were provided security by the Manhattan DA? Well, let's just say uh, providing security sounds too dramatic. <laughs> uh, so I'll put it in a more mundane way. I asked, can you guys pick us up and take us in through an entrance where it doesn't require us to walk through a gamut of 100 or 150 people where there could be somebody waiting uh, and endanger us? And I have small children, and I yeah. don't want to particularly go away at this time period. Uh, <laughs> So I asked, I got a call back saying, if you're requesting that we drive you in through another entrance, we'll do that for you. So calling it security and other dramatic words, I simply asked to be taken in, uh, not through the public uh, gathering. All right, let's go back. You call, you, it's 2019. You know Cy Vance's father. Um, he's obviously from a very famous political family. You reach out. You say Michael Co Michael Cohen has some things he wants to talk about. Not quite. Tell us. Tell, tell that us. That would have been this, easy. But go, let's go. Let's go back to the beginning and you sort of triggering um, the the Manhattan DA's interest in this case. So first of all, Michael is in prison. He's suffering, um, and he misses his family, and he's he's suffering. And I get a chance to, as his lawyer, call him and get put through to him. It doesn't always happen that way when you're trying to get through to a prisoner. And, of course, we're worried about somebody listening in on the telephone. So I can't communicate that I'd like to invite somebody from Cy Vance's office to come up because somebody listening could put that out to the media. Yeah. I had to be very careful and use code words. And it wasn't What was the code? I was saying, you know, there's some people I'd like to invite to come interview you or something like that. He wasn't getting it. So I said, I'm coming up to visit he, you. He thought it could be like political tourists or something, like your friends. <laughs> He's like all my liberal democratic friends. So no, he just wasn't getting it through my code language. And there is a rumor that people uh, at uh, these prisons do 
violate the law and even listen to an attorney-client privileged. But in fact, there's a little funny anecdote when I would speak to Michael. I'd start out by saying, okay, you guys, if you're listening, I want you to know I'm coming after you. What you're doing is illegal, so hang the phone up. <laughs> I got that out of a movie that somebody, uh, I won't use the language, who knew that, you know, I think it might have been wise guys. Uh, <laughs> they, they knew they were being tapped by the FBI, and they said, okay, FBI, F you. <laughs> you know, but th- it turns out the FBI was listening. So I then went in the up, movie or in your case? Uh, uh, no, in my case, I just was playing the part. Okay, got saying, it. All right, you guys. <laughs> so I, t- I drove up to Otisville from Potomac, Maryland. It was a long drive, and I got permission to see Michael. And that's when I said, listen. And that I, this is a private conversation, yes. as far as you can tell? Yeah. Well, yeah, for sure, because we went off in place. I looked around, being paranoid about it. Yeah, but my, it's not, you're not in like the, you're, you're no, together. Yeah. There's no glass in between. It's, no, it's a, guys, it's a meeting area, and okay. there are lots of people around, so I had to find a way to say yeah. it to him quietly. I'd like you to um, be open to being interviewed by the DA's office, because there are state crimes here that might be applicable. This is before, way before Mark Palmer answers, just the first conversations. I had to convince Michael, having suffered through the SDNY, and we'll come back to why he had such negative feelings towards the SDNY and why he pled guilty. It's a story I'd really, really like you to ask me about. Yep. You, you've mentioned his uh, the mutual uh, uh, anger that yeah. they had towards Hatred, each other. Say. Yeah. So uh, Michael said, okay, but you know, is it a trap? Is is do Are they sincere? How do you know they're sincere? And the only thing I could say is, I don't know whether he's going to take my call, but I met... Uh, the current DA of Manhattan, when he was much younger, and he was the son of a very famous father, Cy Benz. And I remember being introduced to him, and I said hello to him, and I since, since then we've had some political uh, interactions when he was running, just stuff that I thought I could get through to him. Yeah, And I did, and was very friendly, talked about his dad, and I said, I'd like to invite your prosecutors up to see Michael Cohen and see whether it's worth your time. That was it. Next thing I heard was somebody from a more junior level saying, if you can arrange it, we'll we'll take at least one meeting. So I was the one who requested it. They said, okay. They didn't think there was much uh, they were going to get. And it took a while for me to convince them it's not going to hurt you other than driving up to Otisville. So that was the first session. It did not go very well. Why? Michael was angry because he had been, I think, mistreated by law enforcement and the Southern District prosecutors. I'll tell you the story. But he didn't have trust for the DA either because they're all part of the same system that he thought had treated him unjustly. Ex- and, yeah, explain. And he, and he articulated that to the gentleman from the and, and lady from the uh, DA's office. What was the most memorable thing he said? Why am I talking to you? What's in it for me? And he had a right... I defend everything he said because he viewed the DA and the SDNY as the same system that had treated him so badly. Got it. And I'll come back to let's why. talk about that. Let's let's pause and do that explain. Now? Pause and explain so, how, why things were so bad between him. So and I'm allowed to say this. Probably he's now able to say this, but he's been told by me not to say this up to now. So his guilty plea and the fact that he pled guilty and he went to jail and suffered in jail. Uh, the way it happened is the reason that to this day he's still angry. And this is before Jeffrey Berman revealed that there was tampering from Washington. And it all kind of made sense. Uh, And no accusations against individuals in the Southern District. I don't know who took the messages from Attorney General Barr, but Jeffrey Berman didn't like them. But here's what happened. Throughout the investigation from from the FBI search warrant, 
which was April 2018, am I right? Yes, 2018, uh, to him hiring a criminal defense lawyer and uh, interviews by the SDNY, but not with him. They would not see him. They would not see him unless he agreed to say everything he knew about his family, his wife, and anyone he ever met in his life. And he had nothing to hide. His wife has never done anything wrong. Uh, and his family had never done anything wrong. But the way they were treating him was that he was presumed guilty and we're not going to even talk to you unless you sign this uh, form. I think it's called 501K or something like that. I'm not a criminal defense lawyer. So without talking to him, on a Friday afternoon, and I believe his guilty plea was on uh, August 21, 2018. So this would have been the Friday before that Monday. Five o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, his lawyer calls him and says, I just met with the SDNY. They're telling me that if you don't plead guilty by Monday morning, they have an 80-page indictment, including tax fraud and including your wife. Michael said, wait a minute, I want to talk to them. I keep a notebook of everything I have ever spent and ever receive an income for an entire year. I'm obsessed with my notebook. It's completely transparent. I've never been audited. I have no offshore accounts. I have nothing that indicates, I've never, I've never had even anything other than a bank account in my building, not in the Antilles or anywhere else. How can they charge me with tax fraud and, and threaten my wife? I want to talk to them. His lawyer calls him back. They won't talk to you. You have until tomorrow morning to plead guilty or on Monday morning, you're going to have an 80-page indictment that includes your wife. Now, I happen to think this is my opinion, so Southern District prosecutors, please don't come after me. I'm giving you my opinion. So my opinions could be wrong. I think they were unjust and unfair to treat even a convicted criminal without giving him a chance. Well, you didn't sign off. 501K, we're not going to talk to you. Really? then why are you going to threaten to indict him in only 48-hour notice? And when he says, let me at least see the charges, because I didn't commit tax fraud, you better plead guilty to everything we're saying, or your wife is going to be indicted with you on Monday morning. So that is why the antagonism, and let me put myself into their shoes. They decided that he had lied all these years, true, and that they didn't see July 2nd the way I did as his moment of telling the truth. Their prosecutor is skeptical of this so-called conversion to the truth. Yeah, I don't blame them for that. I was skeptical in the beginning when Michael said he wanted to tell the truth. What I don't and can't imagine anyone defending is not giving him a chance, more than a three-day notice that he's going to be indicted, and then throwing in his wife which is a form of coercion. I could use a stronger word than coercion. That's where the bad blood exists between Michael towards them. And then, of course, they had their own reasons. I always give people the benefit of good faith. They had their own good faith reasons for not wanting to meet with Michael and for threatening him in order to get him to plead guilty. But why they gave Donald Trump a pass, even by not naming him in the in the sentencing memo and calling him individual one. There was no memo in Washington that required them not to use the name Donald Trump. The grand jury in Nixon, do you remember in 1974? They named Richard Nixon as an unindicted co-conspirator. Why didn't they do that here? All of these questions about the SDNY come back to one mystery solved. Jeffrey Berman, the U.S. attorney, tip of the iceberg, said, we heard from Washington about the Cohen case. Somebody needs to investigate 
why the SDNY didn't name Trump. Don't tell me, oh, we were respecting the presidency. We called him individual one. I don't buy that. And then the way that they handled Michael, which was very, very vindictive in my opinion, giving them the benefit of the doubt that they didn't have personal animus, but that's the way I see it. There needs to be an investigation of exactly why they gave Donald Trump a pass, which is relevant to what the Manhattan DA is doing. All right. So poisonous relationship there for all the reasons you specify. He he goes to jail and you decide they're, they're, that it's worth talking to the, the Manhattan DA to see if they'll pursue a case where SDNY didn't. First meeting, not good. Michael Cohen still thinks of these prosecutors as, you know, not believing him, out to get him, bad taste in his mouth. Yep. How does it develop from there? I think the to the credit of the Manhattan DA, they understood the pain that Michael was going through. This was not a normal human uh, emotional situation. He was in pain. He was worried about his family. And whatever he was saying to them that might have offended in certain circumstances, they got past that. We stepped outside. I talked to them about coming back. I talked to Michael about why, if he decided to tell the truth on July 2nd, 2018, and Southern District of New York gave Mr. Trump a pass, that at least this is an opportunity to have another group of prosecutors to hear his story. So Michael agreed, and then they came back, and the next two sessions were very productive. Hmm. And then uh, it led to an open investigation when they brought in Mr. Pomeranz. Got it. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. The investigation that Pomerantz led put the Stormy Daniels issue aside and focused on financial fraud. Um, can you just sort of summarize the journey from, you know, from the side, you know, and just so listeners know, and then in November 2021, uh, Cy Vance, who decided for whatever reason not to run for re-election, um, his replacement is elected, Alvin Bragg. Um, take us through the sort of ups and downs of this office looking at things, backing away from them, um, the change in, in, in leadership. Um, take us through the, the, that, that sort of roller coaster ride. Because for you and Michael, it must have been like, what are these guys doing? Because we spent a yeah. lot of time, not just at Otisville, a few meetings, but we spent a lot of time, and I was always there with him, but he had to be, he had to have a lawyer, with Mr. Pomerantz and all of his team. And, and Pomerantz comes to really um, the best be the, the the hawk in the office, not only about going forward with a case, but also defending Michael as a, as a good witness. First of all, one of the best lawyers I've ever met, and meticulous and tough on Michael in his questioning. Back up everything you say by documents. Uh, nothing against you, but you did have ten years of 
lying for Donald Trump, so your credibility is on the table here. But Michael, uh, I think, ultimately impressed Mr. Pomerantz and everybody on his team that his life changed on July 2nd. He decided to tell the truth and take the consequence and the pain. Yeah. So at a certain point in time, Mark Pomerantz, I think he writes this in his book, said, you know, we've convicted organized crime mobsters. Who do you think we had as the principal witnesses? People who were murderers. Michael Cohen just lied for Donald Trump for a long time and then apologized and said, I'm ashamed of myself. The captains or conciliaries who Mr. Uh, Pomerantz used to convict the heads of organized crime, which he was successfully um, at least part of doing, uh, said, you don't get to pick your witnesses. You tell the jury this this is a bad witness. He's committed murders on, at the behest of the Godfather. Uh, the only way we convict uh, people like this are people who are part of the crime. Yeah. And for whatever reason, you have to judge whether they're telling the truth. Michael Cohen's apologies, taking the consequences, and the shame is the word, shame he expressed on national and international television, at least as an indicator that he's telling the truth. Then he appears under oath before congressional committees, intelligence committees, grand juries, never taking the fifth. So far, nobody's accused him of lying. He's made some mistakes along the way, but not lies. Were you and Michael disappointed when it when um, Pomerantz and Kerry resigned? That was the other prosecutor Very. in the case. And it looked like, uh, and Cy Vance left the office, and it looked like Alvin Bragg did not have an interest in any of this? Very. And initially, I said a couple of public comments about my doubts about the decision by Mr. Bragg. But I've also now come to recognize it was a good faith decision that he did not think the financial documents case was a strong one because Trump would deny that he knew what went into the financial statements, even though Michael would be the testimony that uh, Alan Weisselberg and I were trying to get him on the top 10 Forbes wealthiest list. And Trump said, we need a few billion dollars, go out and find it. That was one of the great moments with Mark uh, Pomerantz when he said, are you telling me that you just went out and invented $3 billion to get him onto the Forbes list? That's exactly what happened. Just so listeners understand, the, f the financial fraud was basically about- um, Financial statements. Financial statements and undervaluing uh, undervaluing assets was the, the so main thing. So it was, it was, was almost a funny moment that when it came time to applying for a bank loan, that's bank fraud, getting insurance paid, showing the value of a property that's been damaged by a hurricane. In this case, it was a golf course. Yeah, It's in Donald Trump's interest to inflate numbers on his financial statement. But, and this was one of the funny moments during the hearing that Michael put on the television screen, when it came time to paying property taxes in Westchester County and valuing the same golf course where there was hurricane damage, when Michael inflated the number, now all of a sudden the property is worth less to save property taxes. Yeah. Yeah. That, that to me was a compelling document. But nevertheless, uh, Mark Pomerantz made the decision that was a stronger case than taking a federal crime and trying to find a way to prove it as a state crime. And a lot of the details of that case are now in the civil case that Tish James is pursuing against the Trump organization. So the irony is, and yes, um, Attorney General James actually thanked Michael Cohn and validated his credibility despite his 10 years of lying for Trump. She recognized that this was now a truth teller. And what she put into her complaint was specifically showing fraud. Fraud means you have to prove intent. The difference between civil fraud and criminal fraud is almost zero. You have to prove intentional fraud, meaning you know you're doing something false and you're doing it for your own benefit. 
That's in the civil case. You collect damages for that. In criminal, in this case, the intention of paying the hush money was because of the election consequences if the affair, alleged affair, according to Mr. Trump, with Stormy Daniels had come out right before the election. But they still require a showing of intent. It'll be up to a jury to decide whether Mr. Trump had any political motive in directing Michael Cohen, in the words of the Southern District prosecutors, to make the hush money payment. But the similarity between Attorney General James, very similar in finding intentional misrepresentation, which is fraud, in her civil case, in what you're going to find is the intentional uh, direction for political reasons on the hush money in the criminal case. Here are the doubts that this is a state law that is a, a misdemeanor, and to turn it into a felony, you have to prove that uh, the, the the fraud was covering up or in furtherance of a crime. And everyone says, well, the crime here is a federal campaign finance violation, and nobody can find any time where this law uh, has been used in that way. In other words, it jumps to a a, a felony because a federal law is, is being covered up. Um, no court, as far as I can tell, has decided this issue. And so a lot of Republicans are arguing this is just a, a, a made-up interpretation of, of, of this law, very novel. You might The judge might say, sorry, guys, I'll let this go to a jury as a misdemeanor. Um, well, I guess wouldn't even go to a jury as a misdemeanor. No, it's it's a misdemeanor is a crime. Okay, fair enough. You may but, not be in jail, but, but you can the, be convicted. All right, the conventional wisdom is if this is a misdemeanor, no one's going to pursue a misdemeanor case like this. It's only going to it's only serious enough if, if it's a felony, and that Alvin Bragg has a lot of legal work to do to turn this into a felony. What's the well? There's an expression that lawyers use when you don't have the facts, you argue the law. When you don't have the law, you argue the facts. When you don't have the facts and you don't have the law, you pound the table. (laughs) That's what I'm hearing Republicans do. The facts are the same facts that the Southern District of New York had, and they wrote that Donald Trump politically motivated, uh, at least Michael Cohen politically motivated, taking instruction from Donald Trump. So I just go with what the federal prosecutors that have not been very kind to Michael, found as a matter of fact. They found the reimbursement was false and was a concealment. They used it as a a very deliberate word, concealing the fact that it was not legal expense. It was a reimbursement for a crime. So the facts are going to be decided by a jury. Whether the jury gets allowed to, to make the decision is now what you're asking me is, how is it a state crime? I can assure you that there are lawyers on both sides, even though there doesn't appear to be a precedent that there was a state prosecution for a federal violation, that there is at least one or two laws on the books that I have read in New York State that make it a crime to induce somebody to do something illegal or to do something illegal involving campaign finance. That's on New York State. It's an ambiguous law. It's not clear cut. There's arguments on both sides. Uh, that's a legal question. Do you think that that is, if there's an indictment, do you think that that's likely to be part of it? Would you just, just well, describe? Well, the, the indictment is going to describe what laws have been violated in New York State by yeah. Donald Trump. Yeah. If that's challenged, then I think that's fair game for the Trump people to raise as this hasn't been done before. But as to my belief in the strength of the case, let me put it to you this way. Suppose the jury finds as a matter of fact. The grand jury or the jury? Th- no, the regular jury in the courtroom. Right, if he's in A matter court. of yeah. fact finds what the Southern District found. He directed Michael to do the crime. Michael went to prison. How come he's any different? 
Suppose the jury finds that. And then not only that, while he's a sitting president of the United States, he's writing reimbursement checks. I won't mention the name of the former president I worked for, but can you imagine if there was a fact that he had written personal checks as part of that controversy? But there's we'll a call big, him individual too. We'll the, call him individual. Uh, can you imagine BC. if I had personal checks out of a checking account of a sitting president that reimburses a hush money scheme, and then I used a legal argument to say why he should get off because New York State law doesn't apply to federal law? Good luck. If it's dismissed as a matter of law, as far as I'm concerned, that's fine. That's what lawyers do. As a matter of fact, I'll go with the Southern District of New York prosecutors who made a finding of fact that Donald Trump directed a crime and Michael Cohen did the time. And they said that it's a a core uh, danger to our democratic system, the integrity of our elections, is the crime that Michael committed. Well, then it's a serious offense for the person directing him to commit the crime. So how disappointed will you be if Alvin Bragg does not go forward with an indictment? If he doesn't go forward with an indictment, I'll be disappointed, but I will grant him a good faith judgment. And judgments can always be disagreed with, but I'll be disappointed for sure. What percentage chance would you give um, an indictment next next week? So you know me, Ryan, a very long time. Uh, You've written about me and you know I I never say no comment, but I'm going to have to say no comment. I just don't want to predict. I honestly think that there is a strong case here. I've actually called it a slam dunk on the issues of fact, which the Southern District agrees with me on. But on the issues of law, I can see this is a novel uh, use of two laws, basically reinforcing the crime to a felony. And that's a legal question that a judge and probably the Supreme Court of New York will decide. So the great, great question when you lay this out is, why didn't the Southern District of New York go after Trump for this? Circumstantial evidence of the answer to that mystery. I'm sitting at home one day watching TV during the COVID pandemic, and I'm watching someone named Jeffrey Berman, who's just written a book. And I almost fell off my chair when I heard him say, yeah, uh, the attorney general called me to reverse Michael Cohen's guilty plea. What? Why would Barr want to reverse Michael Cohen's guilty plea? He's acting on Trump's behalf. They don't exactly love Michael Cohen. He's already served his time. What does reversal of his guilty plea mean? So I called Michael Cohen. And he called me a few names and said, don't you see that the documents supporting my guilty plea, including that memo in which Trump is stated to have directed Michael Cohen, if they reverse the guilty plea, what happens to all those documents? They're gone. They're non-operative, or the word in the law is expunged. Right. So now ask yourself when Berman wrote the book. So how by I- so the theory here is by, by uh, reversing the Michael Cohen guilty verdict, it gets uh, Trump, Trump off. Next, Cohen's ne- not guilty. How could Trump be guilty? Well, it's, it's actually, he is guilty when you do a guilty plea. But when you reverse a guilty plea, which, of course, Berman said, we're not going to do that, when Attorney General Barr tried to get him to do it, which I think has some real legal dangers if Barr has to face up to why he did that phone call. The only oper- the only effect- This seems like a very undercovered part of this whole story. Exactly. But we're numb to it. This is the Attorney General of the United States acting for Donald Trump is a good assumption, telling the U.S. attorney in New York to reverse a guilty plea after a guy has pled guilty. And after and he the served sen- time. And after the sentencing memo has fingered the president as uh, Correct. the one directing him to, to do the crime. So just to close this And I'm down, assuming in Barr's book he didn't make any mention of this? Or Have I'm, you seen any response from Barr on this? No. 
and, and Berman did a lot of interviews. So all I can say is, to those who think this is a ticky-tacky offense and they should start somewhere else like the Atlanta telephone conversation, certainly 1-6 is the major uh, potential crime. But the Southern District called this a serious crime that undermines the integrity of our democracy and our election system. That's a direct quote. If that's the case when Michael Cohen is sent to prison, why isn't it the case when Donald Trump instructed him to do it? Right. And that question is simply being missed. Lanny, thank you for doing this. Thank you. Appreciate it. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Jenny Almond is Politico's executive producer of audio. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Please subscribe to Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>